Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello and welcome to the Got A Minute podcast. I'm Larson Hicks and I'm with my co-host here, Pastor Rich Lusk. And we're excited today. We've got a special guest with us, Dr. Joe Rigney. Um, Dr. Rigney is a uh, fellow of theology up at New St. Andrews. He was the uh, president of uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary and taught theology there. Author of a bunch of books, uh, a lot on C.S. Lewis, um, but he's also got a, a book coming out on Courage, or just came out, excuse me, uh, on Courage. And a few books coming out soon here on leadership. Um, so we're excited to talk to um, to you today, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, Joe, great to have you. Uh, really looking forward to having you at our conference here uh, yeah. in Birmingham at Trinity Presbyterian Church. And Larson, yeah. I'll just go ahead and make a plug for that. Uh, we've got uh, Joe Rigney yeah. and uh, James Wood coming to town. Uh, the conference is going to be February 16th and 17th. So that's a Friday evening and a Saturday morning. Actually, Joe's going to hang around and preach on Sunday as well. Yep. And uh, if you go to our church website, you can find information on how to get tickets and all that kind of good stuff. So really looking forward to that. The theme of the conference is um, Courageous Church, Hostile World, which, Larson, that fits with a lot of things we've talked about uh, recently and a lot of things that Joe's been talking about recently as well. Yep. Well, we we um, your your name has been invoked a number of times on this podcast. Uh, Rich and I, I don't know, about a year ago, year and a half ago, did a um, did a whole thing on um, on empathy, and uh, and we we had both read Friedman and uh, and and had uh, and had also enjoyed your Man Rampant episode with Doug on empathy, and so those were great uh, conversation fodder for us, and that's a topic that comes up a lot on this show. So it's 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 exciting to have you on the show. Yeah, that's great. I actually, I'm, I'm hoping. So uh, once we, I've got, I've got a book coming out in about a month on leadership, uh, which, which is the Friedman stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, but then I'm collecting in the process of collecting sort of the different things I've written on the empathy deal. Cool. Um, and uh, and we'll be trying to package those together as kind of a little book of essays that kind of because basically right now it's <laughs> every now and yeah. then that. that it just kind of circles through and everybody blows up again, like new people blow up. And, uh, and so it'd be nice. And, and I just end up sending them random links when right. people show up in my, on my Twitter mentions and are like, what are you talking about? You idiot. And yeah. it's like, so I have to like show them like, here's an article I wrote over here and here's the thing at desiring God. And, and it'd be nice to just say, you know, here, go read that. By the yeah. book. <laughs> By the book. He's one of those buzzwords, you know, that everyone yeah. loves to use all the time, but I don't know that anybody ever really thinks very deeply about it. So that, that was a helpful it's been really helpful to, to read your thoughts on empathy. Yeah. And we, I should mention the other connection uh, uh, Joe and I have. He's actually my son's uh, theology professor. So That's true. I've got Jed in class. That's right. Yeah. So he's been really enjoying that a lot. Um, I, I get calls frequently after lectures. And he's like, Dad, my mind has just been blown. And I'm like, cool. Oh, good. Yeah, it's, been, it's been a great deal. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, that's our lordship uh, course here at NSA and uh, all the freshmen take it. And uh, it's been a real, you know, we worked through Calvin's Institutes and City of God and kind of basic theology as well as sort of Moscow distinctives and different things. So it's been a great, uh, it's been a great time teaching that class. That's awesome. Well, um, thanks for the introduction. Did we miss anything? We, I kind of ran very quickly through like the high level stuff, but anything important that we missed? No, that's it, man. You got me. Well, tell us about your transition to Moscow because that's fairly recent. So how'd you end up in Moscow? 
Yeah, that's good. Uh, so, you know, for about 18 years, uh, so I, I graduated from Texas A&M uh, in 2005, got married, and uh, my wife and I moved to Minneapolis to be a part of the Bethlehem Institute, which was kind of the uh, precursor to Bethlehem College and Seminary, okay. grad level apprenticeship seminary type thing. And uh, I'd, I'd been reading Piper all through college and had been, you know, had my world blown open by, by a lot yeah. of his stuff. And uh, so went up there to go to seminary and then ended up sticking around because they were starting up a kind of a one year college program that eventually grew to become a full, a full college, an undergraduate program. Yeah. And then the apprenticeship became a seminary. So, so I was kind of in the right place at the right time, I guess you could say, and sort of grew with the school teaching in various capacities there. And then uh, became the president of the school after the first president uh, retired mm. in, uh, in around 2020, 2021. And, uh, and then um, I would say, you know, sort of the, the presenting issues. You know, so then, and then two years later, I end up out here in Moscow. And, and I'd say the presenting issues were sort of twofold. Um, one was kind of a difference of uh, sort of substantive, uh, you might call it political philosophy between myself and some of the other leaders. Not all of them. Uh, it was there was some a mixed group among just the you know board members and other other key leaders there. But but a, a pretty substantial dif- disagreement about political philosophy. I've I've been uh, more magisterial and and uh, Protestant reformed in my views of such things for a long time and post millennial. So all of that kind of was a package. And uh, I think. Um, with the discussions that began to happen sort of in the wider culture, wider evangelical world about Christian nationalism and Christendom yeah. and all this sort of stuff, we started kind of working down to like, what would be, what would be the ideal? What, what are we aiming at? And so that really brought to the foreground sort of these differences. And, it, and it's stuff, obvious stuff like, um, does the state have a role in promoting obedience to the first table of the law, right? Yeah. Can the state encourage right worship of God or, or restrict um, blasphemy, uh, public blasphemy and things like that. So it was, it was those kind of difference, which you'd expect maybe in between sort of a, more of a reformed view and, and sort of more of a typical Baptist view. Uh, so that was kind of one issue. And then the other was kind of more of just kind of like a, a little bit of a, um, you know, how, how important or how much emphasis we put on sort of the cultural political challenges uh, that we face today as Christians. Um, is that, should that be really backgrounded and sort of real sparingly, or is that something that really is sort of the, one of the key battles of our times is that one of yeah. the key places where Christians need to lean in. At least some Christians, the leaders need to be thinking deeply and carefully and trying to bless the church with that. And I, I felt kind of called in that in that regard as a it's an interest of mine. Um, I think I can be helpful, but that really wasn't necessarily what the what all the leaders at Bethlehem wanted in a president. And so it became pretty clear. And then sort of through that process, uh, the um, the issue of pedo baptism sort of kind of emerged again. I'd, I'd been sort of I'd been a um, 60, 40 Baptist for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, and it basically tipped to 50, 50, which is where it's kind of sat for a while, uh, because it's not as pressing out here. Um, and, uh, and so that was kind of the, I don't know if you call it the straw that broke the camel's back, but, but that basically yeah. it became, this isn't, this isn't as good of a fit, uh, any longer. And, uh, I love, I love Bethlehem. I'm really grateful for them. Uh, I think that there's a lot of wonderful things happening there. Got a lot of good friends and we were able to kind of make the transition, I think in a way where the relationships uh, are still intact, you know, so happy to commend them and, and, you know, bless and, and I'm grateful for my time, grateful for John's influence on me and all of my, my friends and, and uh, whatnot there. But this just seemed like a better fit for for me, for our family. And so in August we, uh, we headed West and we've been, we've been out here for about seven or eight months now. That's great. Yeah, that's it, great to hear. It's interesting to me that that it seems like um, 
you know, I, I think when I when I, I I grew up Baptist, when I ended up in Moscow, I, you know, Moscow is kind of my introduction to Reformed theology in the Reformed world. And so for I, I operated under this false assumption for a long time that Moscow was sort of like what reform people are and sort of a bastion of reform people. Right. And then, yeah. uh, and then, Poor you know, <laughs> right. my brother, my older Aren't brother, we? what's that? Aren't we? Aren't we though? I thought that's, <laughs> yeah. is that not, that's right. not everybody think, not everybody thinks that. Oh, <laughs> apparently oh. not. Okay. Yeah. I, it's, well, it's funny because my, my brother and I started like this, ref, this theology blog as we were both kind of basically live blogging our theological journey, just thinking through exactly. things. And, uh, and I very quickly realized like, oh, we're not, we up in Moscow are not really in like the cool reform club. Like, like they haven't really yeah. let us in. Like they, mm-hmm. like they'll sort of claim us. It's like El Paso with Texas. It's like nobody wants to claim El Paso <laughs> except when they're talking about how big it is, you know, and then they uh-huh. want to talk <laughs> about the distance. Yeah, it's like, right. it's like Moscow only counts when we do something, when it, when it does something good, but otherwise it's right. not really part of the reform club. And so I, I, as I, as we've planted this church in Huntsville, when I, when people ask me about it, I've started to describe it as, as almost, uh, I'm, I, I say things like we're really kind of like a, a, a Baptist Presbyterian hybrid, you know, and, mm-hmm. and just, it's almost, I'm trying to speak not so much about the theology as I am kind of culturally. It's like, right. Um, James Jordan talked about this in the nineties that, you know, Baptist basically, you know, virtually all American Protestants are Baptist in one way or another, you know? Mm-hmm. And yep. so, um, anyway, I, it seemed, it, it's interesting to me that you're there now and that Jared Longshore is there now. And, and it seems right. like that's sort of the, the people that have embraced Moscow and, and the brand of, of reform that is in Moscow are people that are kind of coming out of the Baptist world, kind of the best yeah. and brightest of that world in my mind. Yeah, it's it's uh, there. De- definitely is kind of a, a you know, um, I think that Canon Plus's influence, you know, yeah. Canon's influence in the wider, you know, has has helped sort of people to um, see. Hey, there's a lot of really great stuff. I, I also think that a, a big part of it is that the way that um, Doug and the folks out here have sort of built um, work from sort of worship as the heartbeat, family is sort of the next and first and most important thing. So you know, from the work from worship of God into the family. Um, and real practical, how do you, what, what is marriage? What is, what is, how do you raise kids and yeah. that sort of thing. And then that was sort of the bedrock of everything else. And then, you know, you, then you get to education and then you get to cultural, um, influence. And so, uh, and so I think that has sort of given it a stability. Um, God's been gracious and it's given it a stability that I think now at this point, as the world sort of comes unglued. Yeah. Um, is really attractive to a lot of people, regardless of what you think about sort of how the, you know, the old covenant relates to the new covenant and what you think baptism is. Everybody sort of right. recognizes what I really want is a worshiping community where I can raise my kids um, in the faith and in the truth. And I don't have to lie. And that is, isn't, it is thick and resilient and builds and fights yeah. and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so it sort of, um, I think that allows, uh, it's not that the, the, the Baptist, Pato Baptist debate doesn't matter because it does. Sure, um, but it sort of puts it in a different bucket. Whereas, whenever the other stuff's all good, whenever you're living in sort of Christendom conditions, yeah. that debate becomes more alive because you're in Christendom conditions. When you're not, um, then you find yourself the 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 the, uh, the differentiation, the dividing lines are are different. Who who your people are, who you're building with, become more relevant. 
Yeah. yeah, that's really well put. Yeah, I think I think what's been built there is a kind of micro Christendom. And I think that is what is really attractive is, is that people are longing for that full orb, really well rounded uh, and highly developed Christian culture where you have obviously the church at the center of it. But you, you have all these other institutions that are being created or being discipled uh, and, and being shaped by biblical truth. Yeah, and I think the the thing that was has been uh, not fully surprising because I've been you know, sort of friends and been coming out here for you know over a decade, uh, but now living here is the degree to which it is a micro Christendom, but it's a micro Christendom planted squarely in the middle of um, the remnants of the old Christendom plus uh, negative world. Like that's yeah, the yeah. the kind of microcosm of Moscow yeah. where you have really there are these sort of three different cultures that live in a very very small. Uh, town, you know, 25,000 people, small community, and there, and, is a, and that they have to collide and somehow yeah. figure it out. Um, so you do have the full on hippie liberal. I've seen more trans people oh, on yeah. the street here in Moscow than I did in Minneapolis, you know, oh, yeah. after, for, for 18 years. And, yeah. uh, and you could find them in Minneapolis, but it was just bigger city and they, they ran everything there. Here, you've got that um, all full on progressive universe, you know, the elite university thing. And then you've got what you might call what I'm what I meant by the sort of the remnants of the old Christendom is sort of the um, blue collar um, farmer mm, yeah. uh, working class um, guys who you know God and country and mm-hmm. you know libertarian streak love to hunt love the guns and everything else yeah. and that's that's all around here um, and they're then just you've me got alone this people. yeah they're just leaving yep. me alone people exactly yep. um, and then and then on top of that then you have the sort of the Kirker community which is sort of what you might call um, Christendom plus you know it's like it's we're we're trying to do it and so i think some of what's attractive is that is that the folks out here have had to figure out what is it what does it mean because of the size of the town and yeah. the polarization how do you actually live build fight yeah. in a negative world context which means there's a there's a sense in which it's like 10 10 years ahead of other places in the country yeah. that are just now, and now people are going like whoa what what are they doing in my my kids school you know if they've got them in the yeah. public schools or what are they doing totally. in our town what kind of craziness are they doing and they're looking around going who's thought about this who's who yeah, knows right. how to do it and that's really an attractive thing and that's one of the reasons I'm I'm really excited about being out here it I'm I'm loving being able to to build and fight out here so yeah I've I've said that exact thing a bunch of times to people uh out here in the south that that Moscow is a good 10, 15 years ahead in terms of what they're, the battles they're fighting. You know, there, I remember when I got up there in 2002, they had just finished fighting with the city about topless car washes. Right. And it was like, there were like women going topless and saying, you know, we have to define, we have to define the, the biology of, of, of what, what constitutes exposing a nipple. Um, Like that was a fight that the church (laughs) and the city were having and it's like, okay, that's not happening here. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, right. like it's, it's, you know, things are, you know, yet. there, there's some things we're fighting some battles, but like, we're not, we're not even right. close to there yet, you know? Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's a real, it, it's kind of a Petri dish or an, or, or a, a laboratory for, I think the, the rest of the church, you guys are, are up there fighting and dealing with this stuff and giving us all kind of a first look at sort of what's this What's this going to look like? Because it's coming to a town near you soon. I, I haven't heard about this particular battle. Who won that battle? <laughs> well, I think I think I think sanity in that case did win. I think you know the argument was sanity beat out equality. 
Yeah, right. It was like right. the the argument was like, well, men men can take their shirts off and yeah. do car washes. Right. Why can't women? And and yep. I guess you know, okay, that's good. that that argument is going. You know, that's an Equality. argument. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think in twenty, I want to say in the last few years in Minneapolis, they had the same thing, and it was about whether in the in the parks. There's a lot of parks in Minneapolis, lakes and stuff like that, right? And so people, you know, go run around the lake or go, you know, ride bikes around the lake. And the issue and the question and there's, is, is that issue? Guys can run shirtless. Why can't the women? And yeah. the city said, well, yeah, that makes sense. And so then they passed. They they allowed in yeah. the parks. They were sort of like became easy. And I don't remember ever seeing having an issue. I don't remember like that. All of, I mean, it's Minnesota. So it's like, <laughs> yay, it's 32. Degrees. I mean, I, you know, like it's like how often are you actually going to? But right. but it was sort of like that thing. Like, oh, yeah, that the equality virus caught up. And then took it to the next level. So, I, yeah. I could tell a similar story from uh, when I lived in Austin, but we probably should move on to other topics. <laughs> Good, that's right. Well, you, you, I did want to touch on Christian nationalism, or, or, or maybe Christian nationalism, or, or theonomy, because I, you, you made that, you made just a passing comment about it. But yeah. I, I think that it's important to mention it because, because I think that's one of the things that you know the kind of gospel centered, um, you know. Um, attractive um uh church has has sort of accused branches of the church have accused moscow of being you know theonomist and and they want to you know they they want to see you know laws uh to tomorrow that that you know ban homosexuality or whatever and um and um and anyway, I, I feel like that conversation's been really if, if you're actually reading what the people in moscow are saying um, then it, it, it's pretty obvious that that's not what's happening out there. But, but can you speak to that a little bit? Just, just, just yeah. the anomie and, and kind of the, the way that, that you are, that, that you feel like you and the, and the crowd up there are, are engaging in that conversation. Yeah. So, uh, I do think that there's, yeah, the, I think that it's, um, laying foundation, you know, like laying the foundations is the first step, which is yeah. in principle, um, does every institution of society need to formally publicly acknowledge the lordship of Jesus? Yeah. Right. So like, that's the principle that's at stake. And then, um, you know, I, I, you know, if someone called me a theonomist um, in certain senses, I'd say, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to fight, fight that. Um, but if like in sort of the, the pure theonomy of, Hey, let's, let's just use Deuteronomy and slap it down. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm much more of a, um, I would describe myself as a magisterial Protestant, um, natural law as sort of the foundation of civil order. But natural yeah. law includes not just the second table, but includes the first table, like the, the first. What does nature teach? Well, nature teaches that there is um, a God to whom we owe all worship and allegiance and, and gratitude. Yeah. And everybody needs to acknowledge that out loud right. um, and from the heart. So that's the sort of and so And so laws ought to teach and instruct and promote that. So the principle is promote right worship, love for God, love for neighbor. And then a lot of the particulars of like, well, what does that look like for America? What does that look like in the 21st century are matters of wisdom and prudence in concrete circumstances. Well, what's the character of the people? Yeah. Uh, what's their history? Um, how, what, what sort of um, uh, structures and laws have they had in the past that could be sort of re yeah. reawakened or something like that yeah. versus sort of this like hey we have the ideal you know republic and we can just sort of plop it down right. um you know from the sky 
Uh, and so I've got lots of um, flexibility, I suppose. I think this is one of the brilliant things about Protestant political philosophy is that it has these key things that are really core and and that are, um, you know, every you, you got to promote right worship. Yeah. But then there's all kinds of flexibility about wh- how that looks. And so yeah. it looks different in England and looks different in Holland and looks different in America. Right. And presumably it will look different in Brazil and it will look different in India, like whenever right. it, where it gets around to work in there. And that's OK, uh, because that's what wisdom is. And so right. that's I think that that and I think uh, so for, for here, a lot of the a lot of the stuff is um, the political arrangement that that America had for the first 180 years of its existence was pretty good in terms of its structures. Yeah. Right. It was, it was the, um, you know, uh, so, cause you had, you had, um, Sabbath laws, um, which encouraged, but didn't drag everybody to church, but then encouraged, yep. you know, said, Hey, we're not going to work on Sundays so that you can make sure you get to get to worship. Right. Um, that did have blasphemy laws in extreme case, you know, that, that could be applied and it would yep. at least taught, that yep. how you speak about God matters. So there, those sort of things were all in place already without having to have a formal established state church. Right. Um, this is what when Doug talks about mere Christendom as sort of a as something to aim for, especially in the American context. I think that's that's the idea is a, is a Christian nationalism that would have um, that wouldn't have an established state church, but that would leave room for um, right. a lot of you know for the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Anglicans to all do their thing. Yeah. Um, but that, but that overarching, there is a kind of Protestant core to that, that could even create, that has space for even um, on, you know, for Roman Catholics, uh, for sure. Jews. Um, and then you start to go, well, as you get out there, it's like, well, it, does everybody privileged in the same way? And it's like, probably not because mm-hmm. certain ideologies, certain religions are more disruptive and that you have to take, that's part of the wisdom is yep. what can we absorb? What can we, what can well, we tolerate? And I think the I think the the debate that you know I think a lot of people can philosophically you know get on the same page about some of this stuff, but the real the, it's it's really when when the rubber meets the road. The question is, there's principles you've talked about wisdom dictating the methods, right? right. Um, but but I think the question is really it's not what it's how. It's like how does this come about? Um, yes. And I think you guys are pointing to like you like you just said you're pointing to early America as an example of, well, here's an example of how Christendom was sort of built in a, in a positive world context. But today where we're at, you know, today do, do, how do we go about building this? Right. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I, and I think, um, and I think it, so sometimes it can sound like, so this is, this is my view. Um, there's a way in which it's all, it's all bottom up. Right. Yeah. So first, the first thing, the thing that we need first and foremost, fundamentally, and that you can't do it, can't make any progress until you get sort of the third great awakening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think we should pray for that. Aim Revival. for that. That's yeah. that's yeah, we need that. Um, at the same time, there are like law does have a, a teaching function and actually could be something that could serve that great awakening. Right. Because yeah. part of the part of the challenge that we're facing right now is that wicked custom and wicked law. Yeah. is catechizing people in all kinds of nonsense that makes the gospel incomprehensible. And so yeah, um, if you just if you just think about the way that even the last 10 years, Obergefell, Roe before it and Obergefell have catechized for the, you know, for a generation of people into thinking and acting in certain ways that are rebellious and and wicked. And yeah. so the removal of those those laws is a is a desirable end. Even if even if the people even if we haven't had the revival yet, 
So we ought to be aiming just like we did. We aimed to defeat Roe and got rid of it. And now we've got to move that ball forward. And I, the same thing I think is true in terms of Obergefell, especially as sort of the, the nasty fruit of that decision begin to manifest in the, you know, whatever trans stuff and the surrogacy and just, you've abolished the family. We've got a really good, um, Jeff Schaefer out here is, uh, works for the, the, uh, the Hale Institute, which is kind yeah. of our law, um, uh, Institute at, at New St. Andrews. And he just talks about how on paper, actually legally, like the family just doesn't exist anymore. The natural mm-hmm. family doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, it, and it's like, well, but you, but look, it's still there. It's like, yeah, it's still there because they haven't gotten around to it and they're going to just keep clawing away unless we resist it and, and, uh, and reassert a different vision of, of the family, which requires overturning all of that all of the folly. Yeah, I think that's really, really good. Um, and I, I think you're exactly right. While the law, civil law cannot change hearts, it does catechize people. It does train right, yeah. people in right from wrong. So a society in which, say, abortion is allowed versus a society in which abortion is criminalized, are that you're going to create two very different kinds of societies, two very different kinds of citizens in those societies, and two very different views of children and family and everything else that's downstream from that. I, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, growing up, you know, I mean, I, I was actually born in 73, so the year that the Roe decision was handed down. And it seems wow. like that was kind of always part of the discussion that Christians were having. We need to overturn Roe. I do not hear nearly as many Christians talk about the need to overturn Obergefell. Right. It's mm-hmm. almost like we, we have accepted the new playing field in which Obergefell yes. is kind of this fixture. Yeah. And I think that's a huge mistake. Uh, I think Christians need to be, wor- you know, we need to be working at undoing a Obergefell for all of those reasons. So you, you tied this in with the gospel. And I don't want to say the preconditions for revival, because obviously God can always do as he wishes. But I do think a society that is confused about marriage and the very definition of marriage is going to be a society that has a very hard time comprehending the gospel because the gospel is a story about a marriage. Right. And so when you have, when you have totally overhauled the definition of marriage and really destroyed marriage as an institution, now the gospel is that much harder for people to understand. You, you've erected all of these new obstacles and barriers to people's understanding of what Christ has done for his church and, and how that should be understood. So, yeah, there's a whole lot at stake in this uh, beyond. And, and, and one other point, which I which I think fits well with what you were saying. I think it's it's really I, th- I think a lot of people think the whole idea of a Christian nation is oppressive. It's 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 repulsive to them. And I've got to think, wow, what an insult that is to King Jesus. Right. We've even got a lot of Christians who think yeah, when Christians say that for, sure. for a nation to be under his rule and acknowledge his lordship. Yeah. It's like, what does that say yeah. about Jesus? OK, but but beyond that, uh, I think what people I think one thing people don't understand is that uh, in a in a genuinely Christian nation, there's actually going to be far more freedom than anything we enjoy under some other Lord, under some other system with some other God in charge. Uh, it's, it's actually much better for the non-Christian to live in Christendom than it is. You know, I I would just end it there, but I would say it's certainly much better for the non-Christian to live in Christendom than it would be say for the Christian to live in a Muslim nation or a pagan nation or a Buddhist nation. Christendom is good for everybody because the, the, the kinds of laws you have conform to human nature and to how God has designed humans to live together. And that's, yeah, and the optical illusion that, that, people, that what people miss is that a lot of the blessing that the, uh, this is what the um, certain kind of liberals today want to, they just want to turn back the clock 
five five years. They want to go right. back. They want to go pre woke. They want to go pre progressive totalitarianism, and they think that's sustainable. When that was just the last fumes of Christendom, right? Um, finally petering out at the edges, yeah. and now it's like this is the consi- this is consistent with the system. We're right. we're working our way now. The totalitarian stuff that we're dealing with, the tyranny that we're dealing with, at this point, um, is just the natural outworking of. Um, of the secular project and that, 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 that little, it was almost like there was like overlap of the ages, this transition period in which there were still some of the blessings of Christendom being enjoyed without the foundation being um, cultivated. It was being, it was being jackhammered. And then all of a sudden now the house is collapsing. Everybody's going, could we just put the house back up? It's like, well, you got to have the foundation, the foundation. You can't put the house up without the foundation. Um, But that's exactly right. And I, the other thing I think that's significant about this, and this is where Christians, I think, there's a number of Christians who haven't made the shift yet. This is the, the negative world principle is because um, a lot of, a lot of Christians, especially uh, evangelicals will say it's always been negative world. Um, you know, the, this idea that we've moved into a new era in the last decade or so uh, is like is false because we've been in negative world since the first century. Well, the, the difference though um, really has to do with moral order. Yeah. And uh, this is sort of CS Lewis's point in abolition of man. Whereas, you know, all societies, um, all civilizations, throughout history, even the pagan ones, acknowledged some sort of moral order. He called it the Tao. Yeah. And it was sort of the, the moral order baked into the cake. It's the natural law baked into the cake that, that sort of had different expressions in, in a Buddhist society or a Muslim society or Jewish or Christian yeah. or whatever. But but all of them acknowledged that there was objective moral order, um, rational order. And, um, and then Chris, Chris, Christendom was one instance of that and sort of the flowering, the fullness of that, because it combined both that moral order with the gospel Right. Um, so the, the God who stands behind the law and then the God who delivers us from his righteous judgments. Now, the, the issue then is the rejection of the moral order is different than, say, why Christians, why Bible believing Christians would have been mocked, derided, rejected 100 years ago, because then it was about sort of the peculiar doctrines of Christianity. It was the virgin birth, the resurrection of the dead, all the supernatural, miraculous stuff. That was what made real Christians different and would get them, um, you know, mocked today you can believe you believe in virgin birth. Okay. That's weird, but fine. You know, like it's not, you believe in the resurrection. Okay. Spooky world. This stuff happens. The offensive thing and the thing that will get you, um, you know, get you the riot act is when you say marriage is one man, one woman, one lifetime period. It's, you know, it's the moral stuff. It's the, it's the, it's the moral order that is the, the linchpin. And that is a different sort of animal, the, a a wholesale rejection, not just a disobedience to the moral order, which every society has done, but the wholesale rejection of that even notion, uh, is, is really a new thing. Um, and, and very unsustainable, um, which is why Christians ought to be the ones who are trying to guard the Tao. We're going to guard the law and try to build a society, um, that, that acknowledges the law of God and that acknowledges the gospel that delivers us from it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. The attack is not so much on the supernatural, but the natural. Yep. <clears throat> it's kind of like we exercise the ancient world of its demons and now they're coming back seven times worse. <laughs> that's right. Uh, apostasy right. is worse than paganism. You know, it's one right. thing to have just always been pagan. Uh, it's yeah. another thing to have been Christian and then to fall away at yeah. a societal or civilizational level. Although well, I do agree with you, it's not sustainable. And that's one thing that makes me very optimistic is that fem- feminism can't work in the long run. Transgenderism can't work in the long run. Socialism can't work in the long run. None of these right. things can work in the long run. And so 
uh, they're bound, you know, wokeness, progressivism, any forms of these things, they're all bound to devour themselves and to self-destruct at some point. And I think, so, you know, you talked about the need for a third great awakening. Part of what I think about is all of that is going to collapse. We Christians need to be in a position to pick up the pieces and then rebuild once it happens, which is a lot like what Augustine, I think, is talking about in City of God, which you mentioned uh, it's a, it's a similar kind of thing. It's like the Roman Empire is collapsing, um, which which on the one hand looks like it's really bad news, but actually it can be good news because out of that rubble, Christians can build a new Christendom. Christians can build a, a God glorifying civilization. That's right. Well, I liked your comment, Rich, about um, you know a demon coming back seven times stronger, and and I think about something like Marxism, which is which is really a, a, a more virulent strain of, of um, you know, heresy, you know, because it, it, it tries to incorporate some, some Christian elements, you know, it's a, it's a Christian, it's a, it's a, it's a false um, theology or a false. Um, it's a heresy. It, yeah. Like, it, it, right, it, like, so yeah, right. Louis, Louis would, Louis, you know, would famously describe Islam as a Christian heresy, yeah. which mm. is just sort of, it's like all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, it's a Christian heresy. Yeah. And I think a lot of the secular ideologies like Marxism are Christian heresies. They're, they're, that you, you can't get to them yeah. unless you get, go through Christianity. Right. They, right. They're, right. right. <clears throat> and the point, and the point you made about uh, earlier at the beginning of the conversation about, about uh, theonomy was the fact that our laws are a tutor, you know, that, that, that sort of shape, you know, that, that, that instruct people in uh, morality and, and, and even religion. And, and, and I, you know, one of the, the topics that I wanted, we were hoping to talk about is, is freedmen and leadership. And, and, and yeah. I think about how Marxist ideas and this egalitarianism and feminism and all this, all this leveling of the playing field to where every, there is no up, there is no down, every, everything's flat. I did a I did a podcast with my friend Joffrey Swate about the idea of class in culture, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of nobility, um, and how how um, devastating the loss of that has been uh, for for hu- humans. You know, for for us for us not to view that there are some people that that deserve extra honor and respect uh, because because they. Um, because they're above me, you know, in society, in, in, in real ways they have, and, and that's not something that, that, that is an entitlement. It's a responsibility that those people inherited and a, and, and a duty as a Christian to whom much is given, much is required to serve. Um, and so anyway, I think about all of those societal changes, which the law has enshrined, you know, it, it, we were talking about fam- you know, the, the, the kind of deconstruction of the family and, and different things like that. Um, but I'd love to uh, your your um, recent talks on uh, Canon Plus about leadership. Yeah. I really loved your your discussion of the the idea of degree. Um, yeah, and I'd love for, I'd love for you to kind of maybe if you wouldn't mind just like inter- introduce that idea and, and kind of weave that into this conversation because I think it's really relevant. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so degree um, is a concept that I I got from Shakespeare. So it comes from, uh, in particular, a speech in one of his like lesser known plays, Troilus and Cressida, his retelling of the uh, Greek and Trojan War. Yeah. And at one point, Ulysses gives this speech about why 
why has the Greek army not been able to get it done? Why haven't, after years, they haven't been able to conquer Troy? And the other generals all think it's because the gods are testing them and they're just putting them through hardship and it's external challenges and we just got to man up and do it. Um, and Ulysses says, actually, our problem is more internal and it has to do with, with the, um, he uses a bunch of different terms for it, but the uh, concealing, destruction, um, the shaking of degree. And degree basically is a principle of social order that unites unlikes. So mm. every society, every society is going to have ordered relationships. So husband, wife, parent, child, employer, employee, magistrate, citizen, pastor, layman, um, you just run down the list and there, yeah. there's all these different ordered relationships. Well, that the thing that unites, these are unlikes. My husband is not the same as a wife. Parents are not the same as kids. Pastor is not the same as layman. Um, the thing that, that, that holds them all together, Shakespeare gives this term, it's called degree. Um, and it's what fixes things and helps them do it. And so the, the analogy that, that Ulysses uses um, is sort of the way that the sun uh, regulates the planets. Mm-hmm. Um, we, so we talk about gravity as sort of like a, a principle of order. It's invisible. You can't see it, but you see right. its effects in that the planets orbit without collision. Yep. And he says, when you, when you remove degree, what happens? Well, the planets wander into disorder. They start colliding with one another. There's right. um, all sorts of disruption. They, in the natural world um, degree, we see sort of the, the establishment of a kind of degree in Genesis 1 when God says, I'm going to separate day and night, but that's still, one, it's still a part of my world. Uh, yep. The seas and the land and the skies, I'm a, they're separate. They're different realms, but this is one cosmos. So there's a, yep. there's a unity, but it's yep. uniting these things. When de- so that that natural degree has a counterpart in the social order. And when that principle of social order comes undone, um, then then all you get is chaos. All you get is choking. All you get is suffocation and destruction. And you can't do it. You can't get anything done. So that's the application in Shakespeare is we can't win because and to get concrete, the general is disdained by the one below him. And the guy below the colonel is disdained by the guy, and it just spreads like a a, a fever. It works yeah. like a fever through the whole army of envy. It's an it's a it's envy, rivalry, conflict. Um, everybody's out for themselves. Uh, might makes right. That's the sort of thing that Shakespeare's talking about. And so I I I was really helped by that. Whenever I I've taught Shakespeare for years, and uh, and uh, Rene Girard the um, French literary critic really draws yep. out that as a, as a key Shakespearean theme, not only in that play, but in Julius Caesar, Coriolanus, mm-hmm. um, you know, King Lear, all of these plays have, are really wrestling with that cha- social challenge. Right. Yeah. So then I connected that to Edwin Friedman, whose book failure of nerve has really influenced me on the crisis of leadership in, he was writing the 20th century, uh, the nineties, but has just, you know, Friedman looks, you know, if you think about how bad it was when he's writing and just look at what it is now, it's even worse. Yeah. And these sort of ideas of um, the, the kind of anxious, angsty, agitated system that we just live in, just that that crackle in the air, the anxiety storms that just shoot through society, the social stampedes where people just run. Every something happens, boom, and everybody runs right. And then something happens, boom, and everybody runs left. And it's just a big herd of, of stampeding. And then leaders who ought to be the shock absorbers for the system, yeah. right? They ought to be the, they're the ones who ought to absorb those shocks and be able to calm, you know, calm everybody down, yeah. bring some order, get some organization, put things back in order. Um, they've abdicated. In fact, that's that part of the, the Ulysses speech is basically this notion that the kind of it's, it's the weakness of the leaders mm-hmm. that has led to this flood of envy and rivalry 
yeah. um, that then sort of compounds upon itself. It just gets worse and worse and worse. The, the more agitated, the less strongly, you know, capable leaders you have, the less capable leaders, the more agitated. And it's this vicious cycle. And so Friedman's point is he calls it um, uh, well differentiated leaders with a non-anxious presence, which is right. the sort of thing that a you know, Jewish um, family counselor, psychologist would say. The thing yeah. is, um, and so well differentiated, non-anxious presence, whatever. Um, right. The Bible term for this is just sober mindedness. Yeah, it's good. Like it's so he's got the psycho psychological language for it. But we have a Bible word that just gets right at it. And it's sober mindedness, which basically means you don't get drunk on your passions or the passions of other people. Yeah. So good. So good. I gave an exhortation in our church uh, about sober mindedness uh, shortly after I listened to your exhortation. Uh, listen to your, yeah. your talk because it's it's so powerful, and it, it and and that, that just that biblical term of dad, are you an emotional train wreck? You, you right. are you are essentially driving drunk. You're you're leading a yeah. family and you're drunk behind the wheel. That this is yep. this is very perilous. You need to get control yep. of yourself. And you could be a teetotaler. Right. I mean, that, yeah. the whole point is yeah. right. So like and, and that's why I mean, Paul, you know, using that, I mean, it's a it's a common term in the ancient world. Um, and it just and it does mean just not drunk. But yeah. you just the, the recognition is you can get drunk on more than alcohol. Yeah. You can get high on more than weed. You, yeah. You're like your your abilities, your ability to make wise decisions, your reflexes, all of them can be impaired. Your judgment can be impaired um, by more than foreign substances. In, yeah. the, in fact, the thing that's actually the greatest threat to your stability and clarity and wisdom is your passions and yeah. the passions of other people. Yeah, um, it's there. And, and passions is this great Bible word um, that we don't use near enough, but that we ought to bring back um, because it's it's getting at this sort of uh, the snap reaction um, phenomena where yeah. so, something happens and you immediately if it's good, you want it. Like it's, that's what desire is. It could be a passion. Or if, if you don't want, if it's bad, you might hate it. You, there'd be a revulsion or a fear of it or a sadness over it or anger. All of these are passions. Pity is a passion. And they're those sort of like snap reactions. And then part of the thing is they can, uh, they can operate on a dimmer switch. They can be really intense um, or they can be more mild. If they're long-term and they just kind of hang around what we, we, we today call passions like moods, um, and so when we say, or attitudes, uh, so anger on a slow burn, we use the word frustration, uh, fear on a slow, low burn long-term is anxiety. Uh, so we have, we, we have these categories that we, I'm frustrated, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, all of that kind of language which is really common, um, and gets psychologized, secular psychologized. Yeah. The Bible has a category for this and it's the passions. Yeah. And when the passions run the show, they lead us astray. They yeah. blind us. They 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 take us off. Um, they want to take us somewhere. And if we gratify the passions, then it's bad. We get the works of the flesh, and all the all the junk comes. The flip side of that is the passions. They are good. God gave them to us. Yeah. They just need to be governed, and they have to be governed by you. God wants you to govern your passions in submission to Him. So He restores control of you to you. So that your passions are there and they could be intense, but they're, but they're channeled, they're guided, they're shepherded, um, they're stewarded in the way. So you weep with those who weep at the right time. You rejoice at those who rejoice at the right time. You, you do share the emotions. You do no. um, have, build the connections and have all of that very human thing. But, but it's not um, untethered. It's, not, it's on a leash. 
And I, for leaders, especially, this is the thing that you bring to the table in your home, in your church, in your business, in your school is, are you, when you walk into the room, does everybody breathe a sigh of relief when when crisis happens? When you come in, is it, oh no, he's here because now it's going to get worse. He's bringing more angst into the room. He's bringing more agitation. He's going to blow up or he's going to shut down. Or when, when you show up, does everybody go, thank God. Yep. And why do they say, thank God? Because you're tethered to Jesus. You're anchored in Christ. He's your, he's providing gravity for you. And therefore you can sort of provide that gravity to others. Yeah. It's so good. I I love that metaphor. Love that metaphor of of, of, of gravity. I think, I think one of the most destructive ideas uh, that's very common in our culture today is that you cannot do anything about your emotions. You just feel the way you feel. There's nothing that can be, you know, where you, you, you don't have control over your emotions. Uh, and therefore, every emotion has to be validated. Yep. And, uh, th- you know, I see that idea come up a lot. And what you're saying, if, if I understand you correctly, is that there are actually moral norms that our emotions should conform to. Our emotions are subject to Christ's lordship just as much yeah. as anything else. And that we really can and must train ourselves to feel or to emote or to have passions that are attuned to God's truth and to reality. Is, is that fair to say? That's right. And, th- and this, is, this again, to circle it back to that abolition of man, Lewis on the moral order, is that, that you know, the older view of education was um, to train the pupil to like what he ought to like, right. yeah. to love what he ought to love, to hate what he ought to hate. In other words, to, there's that, their emotional re- responses could either be in tune with reality or out of tune. Yeah. in accord with it or out of accord. And Lewis actually applied this to himself uh, when he, you know, this is the ironic thing, right? He's author of Narnia and he's like, I don't enjoy the society of young children. Yeah. I don't like kids. He's like, yeah. I don't like kids. But then he said, and you might just say, well, you know, tomato, tomato, whatever. And he says, and that's a defect in me. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Like something's off. My inability to enjoy young children shows that something I'm emotionally out of tune. My passions are not calibrated to the way right. reality is. Or young children are delightful. Yeah. And the, my failure to feel delight is a defect that needs to be addressed. Right. And, and, that's, and the gospel is this sort of thing that comes in. If, if um, in our natural sinful state, we're upside down, where the passions lead the show, our minds come after to rationalize whatever the passions just did, right? Like the... Yeah. the um, this is a even secular psychologists get this point. Um, Jonathan Haidt, in his book on the righteous mind, talks a lot about how our instincts come first and the rationalizations reasons come second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, he uses this rider and elephant analogy where the elephant is like this low the passions and the rider is the mind and the elephant's unruly and just kind of stomps on stuff. And then the, the rider is basically the elephant's defense attorney. Who's trying to, you know, well, the reason that he did that was and give all these sorts of really good reasons for just the elephant doing whatever it wanted. Well, God's expectation is um, to put it right back up. It's not passions leading us and God's out of the picture. It's that God is over our mind and our mind is over our passions. And that's that's a well-ordered soul. And then when you have a well-ordered soul, sober-minded, steady, stable, then you can have a well-ordered family. Right. Then you can have a well-ordered church. Then you can have a well-ordered uh, society. In other words, this is back to the degree point. Now the planets are in their proper place. Yeah. Everything is, is orbiting properly. Now, 
perfect in this life? Of course not. We're not utopians. But better than what we have? You betcha. Right. Like this is what the gospel came to do is to put us right with God and then to reorder all, every aspect of our lives. Yeah, that's really good. You know, the way I've heard it put, um, you mentioned hate's analogy with the elephant. The way I've heard it put, which I think is helpful, man is not so much a rational creature as he is a rationalizing creature. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yep. we, we, u- we use our reason uh, in service of the things that we want the most. Uh, right. Is very often how we function. So yeah, that, that that's really really good. So um, you know, one thing obviously that um, has has gotten a lot of attention the last few years are the so-called empathy wars online yeah. and social media, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and and you did do an interview with Doug Wilson on this, which which was really good. Uh, and of course, Friedman I think is the source of a lot of this conversation. That's where I first picked up a lot of these ideas. Most people today will think of empathy as an unqualified virtue. Maybe yep. even the ultimate virtue in some cases. Yeah. Uh, Friedman obviously points out problems with empathy, limitations for empathy, uh, particularly for leaders. How would you frame it? Would you say that empathy is not a virtue, it's a vice? Or would you say that empathy can be good or bad depending on the moral framework within which it operates? Yeah. So this is, this is the, the thing that that stirred up as much as anything was this debate about meaning of terms and their use. And I was mainly concerned and have been mainly concerned about its use, which is, which was the Friedman thing. He's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to write a dictionary. I'm trying to deal with things on the ground. And yeah. he had learned that the first person to bring up empathy in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, in a you know, dysfunctional organization was probably the problem, right? Like in fact, that, and that the prevalence of empathy in that room was the reason that this place was so stuck. Uh, and the reason is because emotions, like we said, are dangerous. And, and empathy, um, the way I'd say it partly now is uh, empathy, if we just mean sharing of emotions, if that's the base meaning is, you know, sharing emotions, um, is neither a virtue or a vice in and of itself. It's just a natural feature of human existence. It's, it's bonding, it's connection. Um, but it's a dangerous one because it's really easy to let emotions run the show, to let the passions reign. And empathy functions as a kind of can arch passion because it's the, it's the channel that passions run on from person to person to person. So a community that's heavily empathetic, um, is one in which you get the anxiety storms. The lightning just shoots through and boom, 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 boom. And everybody's the domino that just gets knocked down by it. Uh, and so Friedman's point in this is that, uh, caring for people, having compassion, having sympathy for people, all very important. But the first thing is, uh, self-differentiation or my term sober-mindedness the sober sober-minded people can afford to be compassionate sober first and then you can intentionally wisely seek to love and care for those who are hurting um, because you're doing so from a place of stability of knowing what what we're doing what's good what's bad what's right what's wrong we're tethered to those realities in christian terms we're anchored in christ and because of that now it's on a leash and so now i can help the person who's drowning get out of the pit. Whereas otherwise, this was the image that that's kind of, I think, stuck with most people is empathy in the modern world means they're drowning in quicksand and I should just jump in with both feet. Right, right. Because well, that's, I, I'm, an, I'm, I'm empathizing with them. Right. And it's like, but now you're both stuck. And this is, this didn't help anybody. The other, the other piece I think that's really important in terms of the modern context is, this is a Friedman um, point, is that empathy becomes a power tool in the hands of the sensitive. People yeah. realize in highly empathetic contexts that um, the the biggest victim wins, 
And so the competitive victimhood that we just see in every aspect of our society, this is, again, a Christian heresy, a Christian knockoff. The Christian um, desire to help the poor, to help the weak, um, has been sort of corrupted as a tool of manipulation. So you're going to compete to see who the greatest victim is because the greatest victim wins. And, uh, and so in communities where that sort of takes root, it's really, really difficult to get anything done because your agenda will always be hijacked by the most reactive, the most right. immature, the most self victimized, whether true or, and it does, I use victim in scare quotes cause it, you know, there could be really horrible things that have happened. The issue is who's, who's in charge, who's, who's yeah. driving the show. Yeah. And, uh, and that's where the empathy thing becomes a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. The yeah, other, maybe one, maybe one more thing on this yeah, that, that, that I, cause I didn't, uh, this has been running under the sur- sur- uh, surface and I may have an article coming out in the next few days, uh, making this point. Um, but it has to do with the relationship between empathy and feminism. Um, so like in all of my stuff, I haven't really made the gender point, but it is relevant. Um, because women by nature tend to be more empathetic than men sure. um, and by God's design for good reasons, right? Like mm-hmm. they're the glue um, bonding with the kids, the maternal instinct, all of that stuff is, is wrapped up with their people orientation and their ability to help people connect and their intuitions and sensitivities to emotional states, all good in its place. The challenge when that, be, when that, if that becomes the driver is it alters fundamentally the nature of the, of the body of the social, the community. Yeah. So this is why women's ordination in all of the places where that's a fight is a watershed issue. So last, you know, last week, I don't know if you guys followed the, that, that dust up with the Anglicans in South Carolina where uh, Calvin Robinson just said it right. Went to a a mixed group. He's got priestesses in the, in the Anglican priestesses and other advocates of women's ordination. And he says, our problem is feminism and our problem is, where did critical theory come from? It came from feminism. That's how it took root. Women's ordination is a cancer. It's a Trojan horse and just went for it. Um, and, and so he would say all the things I just said. The interesting thing, though, was what happened after when he got canceled, when they wouldn't let him participate on the panel, presumably because a bunch of the organizers got a bunch of angry emails. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. And from women who were distraught. And this is the key thing for leaders is the one of the social principles is um, men struggle to deal well with feminine displeasure. Yeah. Like female displeasure and agitation is really Mm. difficult for men Mm. to know how to deal with even good men. And especially sometimes good men, because they've been taught, Hey, care for people, Christian, you know, uh, live with your wife in an understanding way, right? Show honor to the weaker vessel. And so there's a, there's a desire to accommodate. And so when you bring that into the elder room, when you bring that into, um, the decision-making you, you immediately alter the dynamic such that you can't have the same kind of direct, um, you can't fight over the ideas directly because guys do that naturally. That's how God built us to like orient ideas and not get as offended by who said what, what was the tone of voice? Like, let's just figure out the best thing. You bring women in and guys rightly orient and say, well, I'm not going to hit a girl. I'm not going to rhetorically come at her. She made a point and I'm not going to, I'm going to be more gentle well, that means if she's wrong, she has outsized influence in the room now yeah. because no one can challenge her to the same degree. Right. Yeah. If she gets upset, nobody knows what to do. So, so this is a real problem and why and, and how I think the empathetic mindset gets sort of slipped in is when that pressure to women up front, women in the room, 
to and then in terms of decision making. Now we want female influence all throughout our communities in all good ways. Yeah. But at this sort of um, headship, wherever the headship thing is, God expects there to be godly men leading. And yeah, if that, you try to if you if you do the interchangeable thing, it, it doesn't work because we're not. Well, and one of the great flaws with Friedman's book is that he does not bring gender into it. Exactly right. So, yeah. yeah. And I thought what happened with Calvin Robbins was actually the perfect illustration of why women's ordination is so terrible. It's, it's like you proved to the point. He did. By how you responded to the women that got angry. You accommodated them. You caved to them. Yep. And you canceled the guy who spoke against women's ordination. Right. You know, and, 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 and I'm sure that the, the, the people that can, canceled Calvin Robbins thought they were doing a good thing. You know, right. we are, we, we're white knighting. We're looking out for the, for the exactly. interests and the feelings of these women. But actually, and this is where I think empathy is so dangerous, it allows you to be manipulated. Right. You know, if you're overly empathetic, you become very easy to manipulate. As you said, it can be yeah. by victimhood or, or yep. uh, pseudo victimhood. Uh, but 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 it allows you to be uh, steered one way or the other by those who complain the loudest, uh, yeah. those who are um, those who basically call the most attention to themselves in that way, who, who present themselves as the victims of the situation. Right. And the pressure, what's interesting is the pre- like. Um, the pressure isn't always directly from the person who's reacting, right? It's actually from soft-hearted people around yeah. you, right? right? So it's, it's, and that's actually the most difficult pressure to, to deal with is yeah. when it's the reasonable guy who's like, but hey, couldn't you just accommodate this? You know, I, yeah, yeah, okay, I agree with you. I agree. They shouldn't have said that, right? It's the, I'm granting, you're right on the merits, but then there's the but, but you know, this person's hurting, right? Right. This person's what, you know, and so you need to adjust in order and, and sort of accommodate it to suit them. Um, and that's the pressure that's hardest because that guy, he's not reacting in a like blow up way. He's not, he's not storming about. Um, instead he's channeling the anxiety from the other person to you in the form of steering pressure. Exactly. And that's the hardest one to, to actually deal with. And the one where you've got, unless you begin to recognize that how the dynamics are working and how the passions are getting channeled in your system. Yeah. You don't even know what's happening. And yet you find yourself accommodating kind of just subtly. Okay. I don't uh, just don't touch that. Cause it'll blow up. Don't touch that. Cause it'll blow up. And you begin to walk on eggshells. Right. Um, right. Well, this, and now you this can't is kind of where leave. I think the, you know, I, and, and, and your um, redefinition, not necessarily redefinition, but you're, you're kind of characterizing biblical characterizing of highly differentiated, uh, emotionally stable as sober minded. I think that hits some of it, but I think, but I think the degree stuff hits the differentiated piece. And I think that was for me, just as a lay person reading that book, that was the term that was, that I think needed more explanation. And, and that's why I really loved your, your talk about degree, but the, the idea about a leader, like I, I, I run a company and it's, it's better for the company it's actually better for the organization for me to be more distant from, um, from the people on the ground. Um, because, um, because a, it's like the, the sort of middle management folks get to say, well, I need to talk to the boss about that. So they get this sort of, this sort of check, this sort of check from emotion, just running right, right up, right through into the decision-making process. There's sort of this, this check. Well, let me talk to the boss about that. But then yeah. there's also this ability for 
for me as the boss to say, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're not going to do yeah. that. And, and I'm not necessarily sitting across the table from the person right. who's, who's having a fit, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm sort of, and it's like, this came down from the boss. He's the boss. Yes. And, and, and what the boss says goes, you know, and, that, and that, that's yeah. that and differentiation a, where I think yeah. a lot of people think a flat organization is the best or, or they take the yeah. idea of leading from the front and they think that just means that the boss is right there in the mix and, and in every case. Yeah. And it's, yeah. So that, that hierarchical capacity creates the, uh, uh, it, it, it can, you know, extremes either way, but it creates the right kind of emotional distance. So where yeah. you can go I, yeah. out, out of the emotion of the present moment, what's good, what's wise for the long term, not just what's going to quick fix the immediate, what's going to alleviate this, this uh, pain right now, this emotional pain that I'm confronted with. I yeah. just want that to go away. And so there's a way in which this is the, um, I just want it to go away. So anything that will make it go away, I will do, even if in the long run, this is destructive. Uh, and you know, the extreme examples of that, right? This is what we see with like the trans, like it's just worked its way. The transgender yeah, stuff yeah. is basically like, hey, we're going to accommodate this delusion because they're emotionally distressed right now. And this, this they think and they're told, catechized, that this surgery will make it better. And if you can get outside, you can go, no way. This is yeah. absolutely insane. But in the moment, and then you can see the way that the empathy gets manipulated by, but if you don't, then they're going to commit suicide. Right. If you, if you like the, the threat of suicide hangs over and becomes the ultimate steering wheel for a parent yeah. dealing with a kid who's been captured by this ideology, because if you don't go along with it, then are, do you, are, you, are you really willing to be responsible for the yeah. suicide of your child? And yeah. it's just, it's absolutely toxic and destructive and it's fueled by empathy. Yeah, well, I that's think good. The, I, I've seen it. Oh, go, well, go ahead, Larson. I was just going to say, from a practical standpoint, because I'm thinking about how this hits every person in the pews on Sunday. I, I think from a practical standpoint, you know, not everyone's a boss or a leader at their church, but 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 they are. You know, you have fathers in their homes, and I think the structure of the family uh, has become so flat, and you know, the the popular depiction of the husband as kind of an idiot. And, and, and just sits on the couch and, 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 and zones out. And, and I, like, I, I find that to be the hardest place as a man to lead is in my home because I, I'm a product of the society I've grown up in. You know, right. I'm chum, chum, I'm chums with my, my, my kids, you know, I'm chums with my wife and there's not that differentiation that I think is needed. We've lost that. I, I have a friend who's, who's insisted that his kids all call him father as a title, you know, not dad. Um, and, and I kind of, and I get it. Like I, I get that he's sort of trying to create a little bit of a differentiation yep. in the home that this is a title. It's not just my name. It's actually a title uh, that you, yep. that you respect. And, and I think that's something we've lost. And I think it's made mm -hmm. it very difficult for, for husbands to lead in their homes. Um, I don't know how we get yep. it back. You know, I, I don't have the shortcut to that, but, but I, I, I can see that that's, a clear problem. I think, I think that, you know, one of the first steps is being, you know, so the self-awareness to realize when what's driving the home yeah. is the emotional angst. Yeah. Um, and so being alert to when your own emote, you know, when you can, you can feel it like this is, it's a skill you can grow in to be able to go. I feel the hesitation and reluctance to lean in on that. Yeah. It's, it's, it'll be easier if I just kind of sidle away 
Um, so I think a, a dad can learn to recognize his own and then to interrogate it. Go, am I doing this because yeah. now is not the time to have that conversation because we have people over. And so I'm, I'm avoiding out of, out of a prudent delay, but, but later tonight we're going to have this conversation. Yeah. Is it, is it, in other words, is it cowardice or is it wisdom? You've yeah. got to interrogate it to determine that. Mm. I think the flip side for like women is to realize you don't want to get your way by manipulation. Yeah. Right. Like, you, in other words, you it, like women know intuitively they could exert certain kinds of emotional pressure in the yeah. home in order to get their way temporarily. But yeah. the result will be a kind of embittering if it's their, if they're manipulating their kids or their husband yeah. will be a kind of because they'll feel um, men will feel the unfairness of it. Like, I can't fight that way. Right. I can't. I, that That's it'd be unmanly and it wouldn't work. So if it's, if it's a manipulation fight, I'll probably lose. And that feels unfair. And so even if you get your way on the particular issue you're talking about, yeah. you've actually damaged the integrity of, you've damaged degree. Like the, the, the home as a whole, the gravity of it has been um, disrupted. Instead, you want to, it's, it's good for a wife to want to influence her husband for godliness. That's why she's there. She yeah, is for sure. you know, wisdom personified. Um in the sense, like Proverbs is like women, you know, wisdom calls loud in the streets and it's a woman. And then you get to the end and here's the Proverbs 31 woman, right? Like right. marry her. Right. Um, right. And so she ought to influence her husband, providing wisdom, counsel, feedback, help him see things that he doesn't see, do him good, not harm all the days of his life. All of that's true. Um, but, but that, that's a responsibility of like, am I doing so in a way that honors my husband as the head that, yeah. that recognizes his, his gravity as the central organizing um, force in our home. And I'm trying to assist him in carrying out that task, not trying to usurp that task by manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, wives who realize they can manipulate their husbands end up not respecting them. Right. So then you've, you've got that compounded problem. Yeah. And I, I know we got to wrap things up here in just a minute. I've, I've noticed when empathy in this kind of empathy infects a pastor or a session uh, it can have huge implications in church life. Um, this is this is one reason why I think church discipline is so hard to carry out and, yeah. and why so many churches don't carry it out because there's kind of this misguided empathy um, that makes it impossible to, to make a hard decision like that to excommunicate somebody who really does need to be excommunicated. I think it's yeah. why pastors have a hard time preaching uh, against certain sins they need to address within their own community, especially this right. women's sins, you know, I, I think, I think that's something that, I mean, it's really interesting. Um, pastors are, are rarely scared of their session, like their ruling elders, um, who they tend to be most scared of actually are the women in the congregation because they know the women can, yeah. can pretty much destroy them if they, uh, you know, if they get sideways with, with, uh, with a certain number of women or the wrong women in their congregation. And so again, right. there's sort of that pressure to accommodate sometimes. Um, so there's all kinds of ways in which this, I think, can infect church life. And of course, when you don't have leadership that has a backbone and that is willing to do these things, then it actually only intensifies the anxiety in the rest of the community because there's always that question, well, who's really in charge here? Yeah, that's right. You know, who, 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 yeah. who is really uh, captaining this ship? That's right. Well, I think this all sets up the conference that's happening here in February uh, very nicely because it's on it's on the topic of courage, which we kind of dabbled around. But but I know that, you know, I I imagine because of your uh, influence, the influence of C.S. Lewis, that that you you probably hold to his uh, definition of of courage that I I believe is something like 
it's not a virtue in and of itself, but it's the testing point of all virtues. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, and I, I can totally see that. Um, and, and, uh, and I think that's really the, it, I mean, that's what failure of nerve ultimately is talking, is talking about is, is courage. Yep. That's right. Yeah. No, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. And, and I'm looking forward to uh, James, James and I are good friends. Uh, he actually had a really good article on the supernatural natural thing just a few yeah. days ago Yeah, I noticed that um, too. and has done a lot of really good stuff on, on Augustine and the city of God and sort of, and that sort of thing. So, uh, he'll be a, he'll be a great, um, speaker in the conference. I'm looking forward to getting some t- face time with him. So yeah, this would be a great, uh, great time here in a few weeks. Looking what day is to- the conference again, Rich? Yeah, so again, it, it's February 16th and 17th. So a Friday night, Saturday morning, and, okay. uh, if you go to our church website, we'll, we'll get that up to Birmingham. Podcast. We'll get yeah. a link to, uh, where people can buy tickets for the conference. Uh, again, the theme of the conference is uh, courageous church, hostile world hosted by Trinity Presbyterian church in Birmingham. And uh, looking forward to it. Well, it's on my calendar, gentlemen. I, I really hope to be there. Um, it's about an hour and a half drive for me, so I don't really have much of an excuse. So <laughs> I hope hope to be there. Hope to see you guys both. Hey, Joe, thank you for coming on the show. This was super fun, um, and uh, we hope hope we can have you back sometime. Yeah, sounds That's great. great. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. All right. Well, gentlemen, we'll uh, turn you loose. Thanks for tuning in, listeners, to uh, another episode here of uh, God a Minute. And we'll see you next time. The God a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.